Aloha, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to our Undoing Radio. We are continuing our season-long discussion on the meaning of the word sacred or the various meanings of the word sacred. And uh, today's guest is my good friend, Tyler Kochan, who is a doctor, a microbiologist, um, and uh, and a, a professor, and, and he's retiring soon. So hopefully, Tyler, with any bit of luck, uh, welcome to the show, and we can bag on your colleagues by name. Is that how it works when you retire? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I think, <laughs> thank you for the opportunity. No, I'm kidding, of course. Uh, so when we talk about the sacred and we say often, of course, life is sacred, um, but then I know that you are up in arms about a lot of the genetic testings going on. Um, so it seems as though on the molecular and, I don't know, atomic level, genetic level, something level, uh, maybe life isn't sacred. <laughs> the building blocks of life, not as sacred as life itself. I don't know. Uh, so I kind of want to get into that with you, but I would love to to know what your background is with this word sacred, if, if it holds any meaning for you. It, it does. Uh, I was uh, raised Catholic, so I spent uh, years in uh, catechism. And uh, they uh, they get you young, and so a lot of this stuff becomes very core to you. And I, I don't know if you've had uh, similar experiences, but things that you were taught when you were five and six years old uh, come right back. And uh, there are stuff that terrifies me. I'm still, I think I told you once, uh, uh, very afraid of, of nuns. And uh, uh, w- with good reason, uh, they, they could... Uh, hit any human being faster with an 18-inch ruler than, than is actually humanly possible. <laughs> but they, they were into discipline and as a, a little kid, and, and <laughs> even as an adult, me, not so much. So sometimes that, that didn't work very well. Plus, I had this big sister, okay, who was uh, an angel. And so she paved the way. For me, because, of course, all the nuns remembered her, and they thought, oh, yeah, he'll, oh, he's horrible. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> so, anyway. Well, what, uh, I, I, what would you say sacred meant to the nuns? I mean, was this just sort of a word that they threw around, or do you think they really had a belief that had a feeling involved? In other words, was it all just a thought construct, or did, do you think they felt anything about the word and about you know, being nuns, being Jesus's wives. I think they, they did. And the reason I say that is, is because they, they really walked, you know, the talk. They, they were there for real. They were dealing with bratty little kids. Uh, I, one of my uh, teachers, I also went to um, uh, a college that was run by the Sisters of St. Francis, uh, which t- turned out to be really good because they were uh, also so into rigor and discipline, uh, which was something I didn't really internally have at that time and needed. I was either that or the Marine Corps. Okay, so my dad thought, well, let's let him try college before we ship him off, and uh, that worked out okay. But uh, one of my uh, instructors began as a nurse, and she was telling me some of the the things that she had to do as part of her um, professional practice. And uh, these are dedicated people. I mean, it's seriously. Dedicated and uh, looking back, I think as a kid, of course, I didn't understand that. But even as a young adult, it, it took me a long time 
to uh, to realize that yeah, they had uh, consigned their lives basically to what they considered to be the sacred truth and uh, its execution on Earth and trying to make this a better place and helping people and and they did it. So all credit to them, as far as I'm concerned. And, and that's not to say that bad things weren't done in the name of religion. Uh, you know, they uh, they were certainly trying to make amends for it in their little part of the world. Right. Well, so then you grow up and you leave Catholicism far, far behind and become an arrogant atheist uh, scientist. Is that how that works? <laughs> <laughs> uh, fairly close. Uh, I, I would not describe myself as an atheist. And uh, uh, some of my colleagues certainly are uh, and, and maybe are even offended at the idea of uh, higher beings or whatever or greater experience, however you want to put it. I think maybe the, the closest for me formal description would be deist. And, and so uh, I, I think you know, one time I, I think you and Jeff and I talked about this. but No one here I, knows who I, Jeff I, is. I know we're doing oh, okay. Jeff Ritzman. And, uh, and so, a former co-host on a, a show known as Paratopia back in an earlier life. Right. And uh, one of the things that, that I've always kind of felt is uh, somehow, uh, at least in, in my life, I've, I've encountered these really remarkable teachers at just the right moment. And maybe that's because I was ready to learn or you know, everything just kind of clicked or whatnot. But those people pushed me forward and helped me so much and changed who I was. And that, that happened at Briarcliff College with uh, Sister Regina Collins and uh, uh, Sister Mary Claire O'Toole. Uh, that they were biology and chemistry and then another biology teacher in Baldwin. They were all right there and they kind of set me off on this ecology bent. It's something that I was interested in but I didn't understand even that I was. And they started to show me stuff and I'm going, this, this is cool. That's how it fits together. So it's one of those things that, that um, a, a series of decisions put me in this place. I don't know how that happened. Uh, you know, I, I don't believe that I'm predestined for anything or was predestined for anything, but yet it happened and it made a big difference in my life. So I've always kind of felt like things do happen and you, you meet people, encounter people, uh, and it's up to you to figure out like, oh, I should take advantage of this. I should, I should uh, exploit this. <laughs> That's Excellent language here for our. But I'm not. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm glad that. But anyway, I'm not a um, rip roaring atheist. Okay. Uh, so but, well, um, let me ask you this: uh, something that we talked about privately, and I think we can talk about publicly, is when you. F I think did you say you were a grad student when you were, uh, sort of what you you were forced to do your work in a place that had irradiated bones. On one side oh. of you and radiation on another side. Can you tell people what that was? Heck no. That was, that was when I was actually uh, an assistant scientist at Argonne National Laboratory. And yes, on the one side of me was the Atlas Heavy Ion Accelerator. I was in the Environmental Research Division. And on the other side was a morgue. And what they were doing, the Department of Energy was, has always been interested in radiation biology. And it had major, multiple, million, probably billion-dollar initiatives to study the impacts of radiation on uh, humans and other organisms. And part of that is because of its military implications. I think we have to be very clear. But in the morgue, uh, they had um, exhumed the bodies, uh, mostly young women, 
who had painted watch dials with radium. There's, there's a book out called, I think the title is The Radium Girls. Uh, it's very interesting about how, how these things unfolded. But uh, these young ladies would uh, uh, dip brushes in, in radium salts and then paint the numbers so that they would glow in the dark. Well, eventually they, they would have to point the tips, and so they would just put them in their mouth and, and purse their lips and, and get a, a solid or a sharp point. Well, they got big doses of radium, and it oh, it was horrific, absolutely horrific, because radium uh, is uh, the type of radionuclide that will, or isotope, that will, re- not isotope, uh, nuclide, I think, is a, Ah, see, I took all those courses at Department of Energy, and now I can't remember <laughs> damn thing. Um, anyway, the uh, radioactive element radium uh, releases uh, alpha particles, and once they get in your body, they don't get out. So every bit of radioactivity interacts with your tissue. Now, mostly radium goes into the bone, and so it's relatively um, safe there, but still, they would get osteosarcomas and, and other things uh, with chronic exposure the the uh, the book describes what happened with people that got big acute doses and how horrible that was uh but anyway they would they had the department of energy had a long-standing interest and they had secured permission from the the relatives to exhume these bodies and i think that what they did is take the femur and uh look at that uh, basically to see if there was evidence of of the bones see if there's any evidence of osteosarcoma or other cancers uh, get the medical records where they could, and then they would take samples and count how much radioactivity was still there. It's, it's fairly simple to do, working backwards to the time of employment and figuring out what dose that person has and had gotten. And my um, coworker, his name was uh, Robert Thomas, everybody knew him as Thomas, kind of told me that what they were doing at that point, was it was pretty much over because the doses were uh, so low that they weren't getting anything on like a dose-response curve. Like if you had this many um, millisieverts of radiation that you would have X number of cancers that they were just down, kind of bouncing around uh, the spontaneous rate. So he was actually tasked with closing out that project. But that's that's what I had. On, on the one side, the bones. On the other side, the Atlas Accelerator. That's, that's where I lived during my career at Argonne National Laboratory. So – you know, outside of uh, that being probably kind of like funny, spooky, was did you have a real feeling about that? What was I mean? What was your feeling about being sandwiched between those two things? Yeah, it was scary, and and the reason was is is because you hope that everybody conducts themselves with uh, the nuclides very very carefully, but uh, spills can happen. Uh, you know, stuff can can end up the dust from carving up the bones, all that stuff can get everywhere. And then you can be part of that project too, if you're not careful. So there's always that kind of like, watch what you're doing. And uh, I, I'm not, I'm not going to kid you, Jeremy. I once thought that, that I had been killed while I was working there. Because every six months, uh, since we're in this uh, special radiation environments, we had to have a physical and a complete physical with blood draw. And then they would do... Um, an overnight urine collection. You, you would just get a number. You would go get look like a uh, lunch pail and had a big thermos bottle, and then you would fill that during the night, bring it back in, and then they would do the analysis. But the rules were that you had to be informed what your results were, and so I reported to the the uh, doctor's office 
And uh, first thing in the morning, I came in, I signed in, and one of the assistants came out, and she looked at the my name, went right over to the office door, and she said, he's here. And, and another one of the assistants came out, and they're both looking at me. And I thought, oh, oh my God, I'm white hot with radioactivity. And you know, they, don't, they don't know whether to run, you know, call the fire department or whatever. Somehow I've been contaminated. My big worry was plutonium. I was always afraid of plutonium. I don't, I don't think anybody was working with it there. But the real interest of DOE was in radium was plutonium because they kind of worked the same way. And so anyway, uh, they go back and get the doctor and he comes right out and he says, oh, we've been waiting for you. And I'm telling you, I'm, I walked 10 paces and, and I, it was like going to the gallows. I thought, okay, all right, I'm not going to, how much time do I have? You know, all those things that go through your mind. And he sits me down and he said, what kind of diet do you have? And, and I looked at him and said, well, nothing special. I said, no, no. Are you a vegan? Are you a strict vegetarian? Do you avoid certain? F-? I said, no, you don't understand. I, I, I'm, you know, ding-dongs, ho-hos, and Twinkies. I cheated the morning of the test. I couldn't stand it anymore. I had a donut and <laughs> so before the blood draw. And he was so deflated. My cholesterol levels and total fat levels were extremely low. And so they thought, oh, this guy has solved the secret to diet and longevity and everything. And so they wanted to know what, what my regimen was. And, and I had to tell him like three times, no, I, seriously, I'm going to go out to Hardee's at lunch and just pound down a bunch of fries and a burger. And, uh, <laughs> that's, that's so why you didn't die were, then, but you have told us what you will die of later. So that's, that's <laughs> nice. very, very likely. Yeah. Well, all right, let's, so. let's get into it then. So what <laughs> okay. is, I mean, in, for you personally, then having gone through this <laughs> what about life or is life sacred and if so what about it is sacred what is it that you i mean you stayed in science <laughs> i'm i'm assuming that this is this type of situation which i've i've heard similar things before um is fairly common in science where ah you know you're just working around stuff that could kill you sign this waiver um <laughs> so, but you stuck with it, and yet you still rail against. Um, well, you know, I mean, if you saw an article about a scientist who was stuck between irradiated bones and and a reactor or whatever, you would you would probably tweet about it harshly, right? Uh, so, <laughs> good ex- question. Explain yourself to me. <laughs> <laughs> In two minutes. Um, yeah, I did. I did stick with science and. And uh, what, what I was doing in the, uh, it's called the ER division, Environmental Research Division of Argonne, is working with a, a crew that was uh, trying to develop means to bioremediate pollution. And uh, one of the reasons I stuck in, in microbiology was that, that the, uh, it didn't have to kill a whole lot of animals. And uh, that, that was something I just never really um, had much talent for. But uh, the idea was that you can, you can do good. And, and so uh, uh, working with uh, uh, viruses, for example, bacterial viruses, the overarching goal of that was uh, developing uh, treatments that would help people fight off uh, antibiotic-resistant strains of Staph aureus, for example. So there, there's plenty of, of good to be done. Uh, where I get uh, very exercised is, uh, actually I've been writing about it, uh, is uh, stuff about the instrumentality 
uh, stuff uh, where where we get so excited about the the science. Uh, remember from Jurassic Park that line of uh, you guys were so excited basically about what you were doing, uh, you didn't think to do or didn't think about whether we should do it. I'm paraphrasing, right. obviously. Uh, and so what I see is uh, particularly uh, recently with DARPA. Uh, projects that are just kind of off the wall and, and it's like you know you guys and, and ladies think what is DARPA for people Defense Advanced Research Agency program okay or program agency I think it is DARPA okay. and so they're they're the guys who are the cutting edge of stuff like uh, hey we'll make you super resistant to radiation and then you can be an astronaut and, and there, there's a lot of – this is the interesting thing is, is much of what is done in science is called dual use, that you can apply it uh, to uh, civilian life. For example, the radiation resistance, that might really help patients who are undergoing cancer chemotherapy and uh, radiation, for example, in particular. It, it could be a very important therapeutic adjunct to, uh, to help people. But, you know, you could also make – Soldiers, sailors, Marines, uh, super resistant to radiation, and then you don't have to have any shielding, or you know, or they can go out on on the battlefield or whatnot. And maybe that's that's a contribution. But you know, I certainly hope. <clears throat> and, and where I get most exercised about the instrumentality is uh, with the radiation resistance. DARPA came up with a great plan. Uh, oh, we won't change your uh, genomic sequence because they got. I think they got holy hell for proposing to change people's genomes to do this and so they said we'll just change the gene expression we'll just jigger it the way we want and then everything will be fine well sure if it works but if you go back to the radium uh, dial painters uh, it can take a long time for the manifestations the full manifestations of radiation exposure to occur there's acute exposure for sure but there's other people who are exposed chronically and carry the the um, radium in them for a long time and the cancer's well, it was a different profile than they expected, and it was harder to account for this stuff. So my point would be like, yeah, you get to step one, you've tested it for a whole year, but that young recruit has 50, 60, 70 years of life ahead of them. Are you really going to be able to make sure that there aren't any secondary or consequential changes that come down and kill them later? And uh, my feeling is that's going to be a hard one to prove. So I hope they have really good informed consent. Anyway, but that, this is what gets me really exercised is you think, you know, what, what are you really proposing here? Uh, and, you know, how is it really a, a, a great benefit? Well, with the cancer therapy, you could say, yeah, that, that's, that's pretty clear. And they're in desperate straits. With the military, you know, we do order people to their deaths. I wish that we didn't. But astronauts exploring space, uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe we're not cut out for that. And so that sort of like my philosophy is, we're going to have a hell of a time improving on nature. We haven't had much success with that before, so we'll have to think very carefully. And uh, So I get upset when I see colleagues that I feel like are not maybe thinking carefully. Well, explain this to me, because I'm sure you hang out with more of them than I do. Uh, atheists, humanists, who say that they're working, you know, it's sort of the Old Testament, right? Like, what's important is man, and everything else is in service to man. Um, and yet the service that they're doing is to poison ourselves, to poison all of us, it seems. Like with each improvement, of course, comes 
um, something awful, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so you've got GMOs, you've got, um, you know, built-in poisons to crops, you've got every sort of drug that they push at you, pharmaceutical, you know, has a side effect of, like, making you suicidal or giving you a disease. Uh, you, you look at these things, or, like, I've been going off on social media about the Impossible Burger at Burger King, you know. Um, of course, now this is a plant-based burger. Hooray! But, of course, it's the worst plant-based burger. <laughs> so we're going to poison ourselves that way and trick ourselves into believing we're getting healthier. And if this is brought to us primarily by by people who say that they are in this to advance and evolve humankind, what do you think the disconnect is where we're actually poisoning ourselves? Well, I, I think part of it, Jeremy, is that we're not so good at, at figuring out consequential damages. And, and so we have cascades of problems and fixes and, and fixes to the fixes that we But we know that the cascading uh, damages are going to happen. See, this is my point. It's like we're not – we're not uh, naive to this now. We may not know what they are, but we know they're coming and we don't care. We just keep doing them anyway. We keep selling ourselves on the new and improved that is actually more poison. So, uh, you know, what do you do you think that they ever think about it in that way or or not? I mean, I would think that like one of the benefits of a religion or a spiritual outlook um Although I, I don't promote any of those, but if <laughs> I, I can say like a benefit of it would be that you care about uh, life. And so you might not do these things um, that you say are advancing humanity, although probably I'm wrong. But I would like to think <laughs> that you wouldn't you wouldn't as much do these things that are actually poisoning us. I, I hope that you're you're right. Uh, I can tell you that one of the, the things that's happened uh, now, this is just the opinion of one person, but with the genetically modified foods, for example, that the debate has been able to focus on the relative safety to humans. And so we have a kind of a standard of generally regarded as safe, but for these new modified uh, foods, we, we, we test them to some extent. But uh, if you think about the, what we're going through now with glyphosate, uh, and so the uh, genetically modified uh, soybeans that we feed to the cows to make the, the miracle burgers or whatnot, uh, one of the things that people are not so good at is figuring out cascades of events in the environment. And glyphosate has had some environmental costs, and uh, it's turned out maybe some environmental, some legacies that we didn't reckon on. And, and part of that is that our testing times are relatively short and residents in the environment and the impacts in the environment relatively long and subtle and um, you, you always hear that complaint that well if you follow the precautionary principle you guys won't let anything get done and uh, that's also a little bit true as well well do you think that if if one of the tenets of, of science uh, was that life is sacred like if people really believe that then they couldn't do the kind of science that they do uh, because they would have to acknowledge the chain of events. They would have to look for it ahead of time. They would have to understand the interconnecting nature of nature, um, which, you know, people give lip service to, but they don't actually seem to incorporate that into their actions. Uh, do you think that they could not do science if they thought life was sacred? That's a good one. Uh, 
I, I would come forward and say there's there's no doctrine about life being sacred in in science. And maybe some people will will object to that, but um, uh, it, it actually, if you think about it, you know, we we sacrifice a lot of animals uh, in in the course of research, for example, and and so the the way that we look at it is uh, kind of like, well, if if there is a sacredness to life that extends only to human life. But if you go back and you start to look at statements that some of some very high level uh, scientists have made about engineering and, and changing uh, genomes and, and kind of messing with stuff, um, human life isn't particularly sacred to them either. And, and so I wouldn't say that's necessarily a shortcoming. I'd say that's just kind of how it is. That they're technically focused, but not necessarily um, back to Jurassic Park again. Not necessarily big picture focused. Well, I guess then the question for them would be, and maybe you know the answer to this: um, What would be the benefit of creating Frankenstein people? Like, why is this considered evolution or forward thinking? Or it's inevitable anyway, so we might as well do it. Like all of these sort of you know, genetic manipulations and cyborg tech that we want to do to ourselves. Why is that an inevitability for the good of humanity? Oh, that's a good one. Uh, actually, I recall that, that we talked about uh, one of these things before. Uh, maybe it was with um, re- resurrecting uh, the woolly mammoth or whatnot. But it's very interesting you picked Frankenstein because now, just over 200 years after Mar- Mary Shelley wrote it, uh, it's more relevant than ever, and people keep running up against the same kind of failures to comprehend that, you know, um, you got to think about what are you going to do if you have one resurrected Neanderthal? What kind of life do they have? How about a woolly mammoth? Uh, you know, can we really do some of these things, and, and what does it mean after that? Uh, and we're just not thinking about these things very well at all. And so, in in essence, with some of the transhumanism, uh, some of it, not not necessarily all of it, uh, we're doing our own 21st century redux of the Frankenstein story and not even understanding that that's what we're doing. Uh, so, I, I find myself sometimes kind of amazed, sometimes appalled, but we're seeing this without you know a thoughtless kind of, of reenactment of Frankenstein. It's the kind of story that a lot of kids would know instantly. And a lot of the high-powered scientists start talking about, well, yeah, we could do this, this, and this. We could have artificial wombs, and we don't even need it. And I tell you, it's, it's kind of amazing to watch the big brains sort of uh, – trip over themselves when it, it comes to uh, thinking out loud about the future. You know, when I was a, a, a wee young lad, I learned about science that, you know, you form a hypothesis and then you test it and then it becomes a theory if it works and then you test it. And it's all of this trial by error sort of thing. Um, is it still that way? I mean, because it sounds like it's still that way, which means that, uh, in other words, it's not inclusive of thinking out consequences like possible consequences that might be reasons to not do the experiment in the first place. 
Do people think in those terms or do they just go, well, we'll do it and see what happens? They do both. Uh, there have been uh, – you've heard of CRISPR? The, uh, yeah. The clustered – yeah, the, so that's an engineering technique that we have now. Uh, that wasn't found by a hypothesis. That was found by accident. It, CRISPR refers to the observation, these clustered, regularly interspaced repeats in, in bacterial genomes. And when they saw them, nobody knew what they were. And then finally they figured out, like, oh, my God, it's a viral defense system. And then later they figured out, like, we could use this. Then the question becomes, okay, let's do that. And, and so we demonstrate its feasibility, but we don't know how well it works. We don't necessarily know how controllable it is, uh, uh, but we've got the, the tools. Uh, some of the scientists, some of the leading scientists, to their credit, have said, whoa, hold it, stop. We could, can use it in certain cases, but not others. We have to be really, really careful here. Uh, you know, we don't know what's going on. Uh, with gene drives, uh, the people that basically came up with the concept also said, oh, yeah, but we have to be careful. It's a little bit cat-out-of-the-bag kind of situation, though. They've already built the damn thing, and, and now we want to be careful with it. Uh, and moreover, they've disseminated the, the information. So uh, hopefully this will will work out better. But to get to your, your basic idea uh, is, yeah, we, they do, some of the people have uh, seen uh, the, the problems and have moved to try to, um, to manage them, to mitigate them. That, that does happen. But I think you're absolutely right, Jeremy, that we break it down piecemeal in a way that we think like, yeah, I need to find out if I can cut this piece of DNA. And then I need to find out if I can put this thing extra in the little construct that does that. And then I need to find out how I get it into cells. So one little step at a time, then suddenly, there you are with a tool. And, and now how are we going to use it? So it is, it's, it's quite conducive to uh, breaking it down in such a way that we don't see the big picture. But nonetheless, some, some of the scientists have become aware and alarmed and have worked really hard to uh, to educate their um, their compatriots and there, there's a difference of opinion and so uh, but we, you know we have the CRISPR babies somebody said oh I can take this and do that and they did it that maybe won't work out so well for those babies we hope for the best but this is where we are the tools are out there the knowledge is out there people are going to use it uh I also I know you're you're a world traveler and you've been to various sites that some people would consider to be sacred sites around the world. Um, did you ever get a feeling from any of them that you would describe as sacred? Oh, they're they're fascinating and and uh, um, you know it's just it's to me what what I really kind of enjoy is uh, and ever since I was a kid uh, I grew up in Western Iowa and and I liked walking around and, and realizing you know I'm I'm where they walked kind of thing and trying to figure out like how these people had the insights to put Machu Picchu together and and uh, how they they managed it is just absolutely stunning and, would you uh, describe it uh, as sacred would you describe how you felt as sacred not not to me I I, I would say it's, it's a place that I recognize as being uh, extraordinarily valuable and something that we have to preserve and recognize but i wouldn't say that i had a, a feeling of, of oneness with the universe or anything such as that if that's so, what you mean by i don't i don't know what i mean i'm, I'm asking you <laughs> uh so oneness with the universe would that be a sacred thing is that i mean how, how do you is there room in your vocabulary for the word sacred let me ask it that way oh absolutely 
Okay, so give Absolutely. me an example of something that you find to be sacred and 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 what you feel or or think about that. Oh, that's that's a, a toughie. Uh, for me, it's a, the functioning environment and, and knowing that we're not messing it up; that it can it can exist uh, and and will be there for our grandchildren and their grandchildren. Uh, that you know, we've been bequeathed this incredible living world. We we know now that there's all kinds of planets, but not very many like Earth at all. And you know, where before it was kind of hypothetical, now it's sure that most solar systems don't look like ours, and very few planets look like Earth. We have a big responsibility to keep it going. So that's that's something where I, I kind of feel the sacred. Well, like this morning, I went out. I always go out in the morning to look at the stars because I, I get up real early. And uh, the owls, we have big, great big horned owls around here. Um, they're constantly uh, making noise at me. <laughs> they're, they're making noise. They sing duets, believe it or not. And they're mated pairs. And uh, I love that. Yeah, that kind of gets me. So I, I would consider protecting that and ensuring that those things survive into the future. That's a sacred trust. So that quiet, close enough? Yeah. So another, I mean, I guess you could say then for you, at least two examples of the sacred would be um, quiet moments where you're sort of spying upon the machinations of these birds of nature where you, you just find yourself in it. And wow, that's amazing. Um and continuity. I mean, the, the the continuation of life itself is is sacred. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah. I, I don't know if somebody who doesn't believe in the word sacred or doesn't have a place for it uh, in any way that has a feeling attached to it would would agree or not. But I, I would think that everyone wants to continue life, and so. I guess I'm I'm just back trapped at. Uh, we know why dumb people don't do it, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, but what about the really smart people? What about the people who claim to be promoting evolution as they see it? Uh, why are we okay with poisoning ourselves when we um, ultimately say that we are trying to continue ourselves? Uh, I'm trying to get yeah. at this discrepancy here, and I I can't quite do it. No, I don't think you can, and, and I, I think honestly you've, you've exposed kind of uh, something that I, honestly folks maybe don't think about enough. And uh, uh, one of those things that just go back to gene drives, which is something that's that's got me very upset. That's that's the idea of a CRISPR being automated in a, in such a way that it can be let out in the environment and it just does what it does, and nobody can stop it. So we could change the, the genome, basically, of every wild uh, species uh, in, in our ecosystems at will to do what we think is best. So I'll just remind you that you know, our management of the world has led to disasters in the Gulf of Mexico, the Dust Bowl in the, you know, in the 30s in the United States, uh, basically the... the uh, so-called, I guess, uh, development of uh, our resources often led to their destruction. Uh, our ability to, uh, to formulate what is really a good goal is so inferior that we need to be really careful here. But I, I feel like 
there are a lot of people that, that look at gene drives and they say, we could use this to wipe out malaria, and, and that would be a good thing. The, the problem is they're ahead of themselves. They're so enthused about the technology, they're way ahead of themselves. Gene drives are a hypothetical. We don't know if they'll work, how well they'll work, and what sort of side effects they might have in the environment. And a lot of people are ask, acting like uh, they're proven that all we got to do, all you got to do, Tyler, is tell us, okay, we go and release them and malaria will be cured. And it's never going to be that simple. I, I'm almost positive of that. But they're also sometimes not telling you the whole story. And one of the things that, that I think has come to the fore is, uh, you know what Lyme disease is? Remember yes. from living back east? Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are ticks that, um, that carry this disease to humans, and uh, they, they live in the environment. Well, places like Nantucket Island are, are really heavily impacted by Lyme disease. It, it's a scourge. I, I'm not going to kid you. And there's a, a move afoot to genetically modify mice as sort of like a stalking horse for uh, the use ultimately of gene drives to control uh, Lyme disease in rodent populations. Jeremy, there's a vaccine that's ready that, that you could actually use uh, against uh, Lyme disease rodents, carrying rodents. Uh, it, and it, it's at this testing stage already. You wouldn't have to modify the genetics of the populations. You wouldn't have to use this technology. And lo and behold, I don't recall ever seeing the proposals to do what are you know pretty fantastical science projects uh, talking about, oh yeah, there's an alternative. Now, one of the things that these guys have run up against, I think, is when you're proposing to do environmental releases and whatnot, there are, are basically kind of uh, the EPA and whomever is in charge has some rules. And one of the things that you have to do is talk about alternatives. Okay, here's our preferred solution, but here's an alternative solution. You also have to let the public weigh in. But I, I was kind of disappointed to see that some things were omitted. And I question that. And I know that their, their overall objectives are good. I seriously believe that. But I, I question the thing of half a story or not the full story and letting people decide. Our basic problem with Lyme disease, or one of the aspects, is that, is that we've screwed up the environment. Okay? And, and this is the legacy. That we've changed things and we've changed how ecosystems function. And Lyme disease has prospered because of that. And we suffer. And, and, and our animals suffer. Dogs get Lyme disease as well. So we don't actually want to look at the root causes oftentimes. We just no. We want to deal with the flare. We want to, yeah, we want the pill. We want the vaccine. We want this. And, and to a degree, I understand that. To a first approximation, th- those are important. But the underlying real problem of changing the ecology is that it ain't going away. And so this this is always going to be there. And that's... So we're lying to ourselves. I mean, really, here I am right back. I mean, this is perfect for our undoing radio because it is uh, my experience that this mind that we, you know, the westernized mind that we say is, oh, just human nature to be wrong, <laughs> to do wrong things... <laughs> Uh, and to idealize not doing that as something that's impossible, um, isn't, isn't true. (laughs) It's how we're living. It certainly is what we're doing, 
but it doesn't have to be this way. And I don't think that there's any way with this mind to get to um, the other side of that. I think it has to be abandoned altogether. It's that's Sorry. yeah. Can you escape? Can you escape yourself? And I I don't know that that I could. Uh, you know, you have certain training. Uh, well, not can you escape and, yourself, uh, but can you understand yourself so thoroughly that this self completely dissolves, and then <laughs> you know the partial dissolves and a wholeness takes fruit? Uh, is that possible? I I think it is, provided uh, we allow enough people to express their opinions and, and respect their opinions. So one of the ways that that's happened out here uh, in Arizona is through land use planning. And, uh, and there's a lot of very intelligent, sincere people uh, who, for example, when presented with certain plans to manipulate the environment, would probably be able to see through or understand or, or know and say, yeah, but you didn't think about this. So I don't know if you want to call it the hive mind, but the more eyeballs and diversity you have on it in in that way, I think, you know, that makes us a little bit stronger. Now, I can I can tell you also that there's no panacea because I've seen the land use process just come off the rails where uh, plans were made and formulated and they didn't work. And unfortunately, there was no going back. Okay, so, I mean, that was the first time I'd ever thought I, something I'd never see. Now I've seen so many things I can't believe. Um, but uh, have you heard of Nine Mile Canyon in Utah? Uh, I don't think so. It's sometimes called the, the world's longest rock art gallery. And, oh, okay. and uh, unfortunately, it was also in a place that was economically valuable for uh, natural gas. And so the, the uh, companies naturally wanted to exploit that. And a lot of people got together uh, to uh, try to protect the resources. And ultimately, the resources were, in fact, exploited. But there were plans put in place to protect some of the rock art that were next to a road, to the road. There's only really one road through the canyon, a major road. And, uh, and they rerouted one road to avoid a really well-known panel called the Hunt in Cottonwood Canyon. Uh, anyway, uh, they uh, um, did certain things. But the dust control measures didn't work. And it's like, well, hey, people, you, you, you got to improve this. These things are just covered with dust. You're, you're what you're spraying down with water or, or the, the um, chemicals you're using, they're not working. But what they needed was a plan. Apparently, it didn't have to work. They got the plan. <laughs> and, that's, and, then, and then they could just, Katie, bar the door, go ahead. So that, that was very disappointing to see the actual execution of the plan. But through the efforts of, uh, of people and the cooperation, I'm not saying that the, the um, people who were mining the gas, producing the gas, were completely irresponsible. Some of it was, was saved, but it, it's not this, the same. I mean, this, this is the price of, of I guess, progress. Um, Right. Natural gas. Natural gas production has saved us. You know, politically, um, it, it's important. I, I feel like we could do it in a way that we don't have to trash the the world to get it. But you're anyway. wrong. But anyway, thank you, Tyler, I, <laughs> for uh, <laughs> uh, thank you for doing this. Um, 
I know the, it's probably not not exactly you're in your wheelhouse talking about the sacred, but I appreciate you coming on and doing this anyway. Yeah, yeah. I, honestly, I think if you talk to a lot of people, um, professors, and uh, except for the theologists, the the sacred immediately if it comes up as a topic will and cause them to kind of clam up because we back in the day, you know, hundreds of years ago, religion was the authority, and there was this uh, extreme uh, battle between the two. Now those those days are are over. You know, the Vatican has its own observatory in Arizona. I don't know if you were aware of that. No. Um, yeah, it's kind of interesting. And, uh, um, you know, I mean, there's that, that kind of antithesis to one's existence situation. That's that's over now. And, and there are some scientists who are uh, openly uh, religious in many ways. There's many of them. Talking about the sacred, dealing with the sacred, or whatever, I think is probably going to cut through their comfort zone pretty quickly. 